Good morning. Welcome. Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Esther chapter 1. It is a delight to know, it's a wonderful blessing to know that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is a great comfort even as we gather together in Christ today because He is here to teach us. He is within us. He is guiding us even as we speak and we hear so that the truth of His Word would come to bear upon our hearts, would be revealed before our eyes and we would be changed into the image of Christ. Isn't that a delight? You are the temple of the living God. And God is putting together stone by stone, piece by piece, a dwelling place for Himself for the glory of His Son. Would you stand with me this morning? And um, because this is a narrative text, I'm going to invite you to listen as I read. Um, I know there's a lot of names in here, and hopefully I'll make sense of them, but I think it will be better if I just read and you listen and hear the Word of the living God as I read for us Esther chapter 1. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus set sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also Couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. The king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mamuhan, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But 
Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged. His anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the, next, the men next to him being Harshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Eres, Marsena, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and of the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Well, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to read and seek to understand this story, Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of Your Word. That we may see Your glory. That we may be able to understand Your intentions for this book. That we may gain its meaning and be able to make connection between this picture and our own lives so as to apply the truth to ourselves, to our hearts, to our own very real situations in each one of our lives. Spirit of God, apart from You, we cannot see. We cannot discern. We cannot apply. We certainly cannot change. And so, we ask that You would be with us to help us. We pray this for Christ's sake. And in His name and by His authority we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. This morning as we begin to study the book of Esther, I would like to give a kind of introduction to the book of Esther. And this introduction 
is not going to be maybe like the typical introduction that I would give at the beginning of the study of a book. I'm not going to deal strictly with author and date and occasion and history and so on. We'll hint at some of those things along the way and also throughout the course of the study. But this introduction, I, I have four questions that I believe are important for us to consider and to answer as we begin to study this book. I think, I hope that it will be helpful to us as we begin. Three quest- or four questions today. The first one is, why are we studying Esther? Maybe you thought that. Maybe one of you or two of you or thought that as you come. Well, why Esther today? Why are we starting Esther at the front of this year? So I'd like to talk about that question. How do we rightly interpret Esther? How do we interpret Esther? You know, I, I believe that all of us can relate with this thought that sometimes it seems easier to interpret New Testament books that are written more philosophically, if you were, if you will, than Old Testament books sometimes that are a story, a narrative. What am I to do with this story? How are we to rightly interpret Esther? Third, what is the point of Esther? Let's see if we can begin to introduce ourselves to that even up front so that as we walk through the book together, we can be looking for those things. And fourth, how should we apply Esther to our own lives? So let's look at each one of these questions. And that's the outline that I gave you as well in your bulletins on the note. First of all, why are we studying Esther? And the first answer is is because it's God-breathed Scripture. That's the most basic reason and plenty good reason to do so. Turn with me again for a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Suppose I could even start with verse 14. As Paul writes to Timothy and he says, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing that knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings. The question is, is, is Esther part of the sacred writings that are able to make us wise for salvation? Well, yes, it is. This is a God-breathed book. And therefore, it is able to make us wise for salvation. Consider that. It's God-breathed Scripture. And he continues, All Scripture then is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, uh, complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, including Esther, including the Song of Solomon, including Ecclesiastes, including any other book that you can think of among these 66 books. Now, we often think of the letters of Paul, maybe, Ephesians and Colossians and so on, as those Scriptures which are profitable for teaching. They tell me how to live in the normal routines of life. They're so very immediately practical. Right off the page, they reprove me. They can certainly make me complete for every good work. But Esther? This too is part of what God has given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is profitable for us, for teaching, for reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. Do you 
see Esther that way. I want to invite you to do so as we begin to study. It's also because Esther will point us to Christ. Esther will indeed point us to Christ. Please remember what we've talked about even as we began to study the book of Ruth, how Jesus on, on the way to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, told His disciples about Himself from the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, in verse 27, Jesus says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's basically the bookends of the Old Testament, isn't it? Moses and all the prophets. That's shorthand for the Old Testament Scriptures. And from there, Jesus says that He interpreted to them in the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Esther points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And we'll see that together as we walk through this book. Jesus told us that in John 5.39, as we've frequented that verse often, that He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Meaning that you want to use the Scriptures as a moral standard by which you can, in your own human efforts, achieve eternal life. Well, Jesus said, that's not the way. The Scriptures speak of Me. The Scriptures speak of Me. And so let's anticipate seeing the person and work of Jesus Christ in this book as well. Being pointed to Christ from this book. Another point, the reason we are studying Esther is because Esther will give instruction. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. I want to read again verses 1 through 7. Romans 15, verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who have reproached you fell on Me. Please notice verse 4 in particular. For whatever was written in former days was written for what? Or our instruction. Now notice, notice what kind of effect this instruction has on us. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. I want to commend this book to you because if we catch, if we're able by the Spirit of God to catch the author's intention of this book of Esther, I believe that it will encourage us to endure through very difficult days. I think this is part of the equipment that God would give us for the very difficult days that are coming so that we can endure with hope in the final chapter of God's redemptive story. Esther will help us with that powerfully. So it's there for our instruction in these things. 1 Corinthians, turn with me over one book, 1 Corinthians 10. And it says a very similar thing, but in a different application, where Romans in 15 talks about our endurance with hope. 
And that the Old Testament gives us instruction to help us to endure and, and hope in the God of hope and the God of encouragement and endurance. Here in Romans or in 1 Corinthians 10, particularly verse 11, we're called upon to take the Old Testament as an example in our instruction. Now these things happen to them, verse 11, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so here we have the knowledge now that the Old Testament is given to us, the book of Esther is given to us as instruction so that we can humble ourselves before the Lord turn away from temptation, finding Him to be our faithful way of escape. Esther gives us instruction. And therefore, because these benefits are guaranteed to us in God's Word, if we will come filled with the Spirit and humbly, we are then called to rightly divide Esther and gain from it just what the author intended. 2 Timothy 2.15 what does Paul instruct Timothy? To be careful, to study, to show yourself approved to God, a, a diligent workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. May that be our prayer as we come to Esther together, that we'd rightly handle it and gain from it all that God has for us. Number two, the question, how do we rightly interpret Esther? We need, and here's, here's really the, the main point of how we can rightly inter interpret many Old Testament books, especially those narratives. In order to rightly interpret Esther, we must seek to understand its meaning in the context of the larger story of redemption. From the first Gospel promises of Genesis 3.15 to the final word of conquest, in Ephesians 1.10. That's how we need to see the book of Esther. And then it'll begin to make sense. We need to see this short story in the context of the greater story. Let's walk through that together a little bit mentally here. Would you turn with me to Genesis 3.15? This is a verse that if you are not intimately familiar with it, you need to be. This is what we call the first gospel. Genesis 3.15 is such a wonderful key to unlocking so much that's in the Word of God. So the story of redemption begins with creation, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so He created the earth and all the wonders in the earth. And He created man and breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And He said to the man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Keep it and protect it and provide for it. And He gave the man a helper. Woman. And He set them off into His world as His representatives to proclaim His glory, to do His work to represent Him and His authority in the earth. And He gave that man and woman everything they needed to accomplish His will for them. 
and to prosper and to bring Him glory. And He gave them one guideline. You can have all of this, but remain under My rule. That's, that's what the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about, right? Don't, don't step outside of My authority. I am still your King. You're My representatives. You're My image bearers on the earth. Remain obedient to My will and My word. Well, of course, we know that the fall happened, right? Satan tempted Eve. And Adam blatantly rebelled. And humanity fell and the world was cursed by God. But, even in that very curse, God gave gospel promise. Right in the midst of the curse. He's speaking to Satan in Genesis 3.15. And look what he says. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise your head, or I'm sorry, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel right there. What is God promising? He's speaking to Satan and he's making promises. And he speaks about two kingdoms. Two offsprings. Did you see the two offsprings? Two massive groups of people, but one in particular that would come from one of the groups of people. Two kingdoms. The offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. And Yahweh, what does He say? What does Yahweh cause to happen between those two offspring? He says, I will put enmity. What is that? Hatred, hostility, fighting, constant conflict. How is God going to do that? Because the offspring of the woman, He is going to choose by His own grace. and He's going to change them. and He's going to dwell among them. and He's going to be their God. And He's going to make them His people. And so they're going to become the kingdom of light. While the offspring of Satan, those left in their rebellion, are the kingdom of darkness. But from the kingdom of light, from his offspring, will come one offspring, one seed, who will ultimately do what? Who will be bruised on his heel as he crushes the head of the serpent. What's that speaking of? The power of Christ to accomplish all of God's redemptive promises and return this fallen, cursed, and broken world and humanity back to a place of holiness under the Lord. So right there in verse 15, he's at the beginning and he's declaring the end through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The offspring. The seed of the woman. That's the first Gospel promise. But please notice, and you will see this as we work through the story of Esther, there is enmity between these two offspring. And the one is constantly trying to destroy the other. Constantly trying to... The kingdom of darkness is constantly trying to destroy the kingdom of light. And most importantly, the offspring of Satan is constantly trying to destroy the offspring of Christ. Constantly. So God continued to communicate this very same gospel of salvation through His covenant promises all through the Old Testament to His chosen people. 
to His people that He's chosen by His grace. Specifically, think of to Abraham. He made these same promises to Abraham. He expanded them to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1-3. God promised Abraham, I'll give you a land. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. In fact, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. How would God do that? Through the seed, Jesus Christ. All the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed with salvation. Genesis 15, 1-6, Abraham <clears throat> has received another refreshment of that covenant <clears throat> from God. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I will make your offspring like what? The stars of the heavens. What is God talking about? He's talking about first of all the nation of Israel and beyond them to all who would be the heirs and the sons and daughters of Abraham through faith. 17, Genesis 17, 1-8, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Isn't that interesting? A multitude of nations through Abraham would come a seed, one, the Messiah, who would save and bring people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation to be a people unto the Lord through Christ. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you, Abraham. What a promise. Wow, these are loaded promises, aren't they? My covenant will be with you and your offspring everlastingly. I will be God to you and your offspring everlastingly. I will give to you and your offspring the land for an everlasting possession. And these same promises were reaffirmed and expanded at various times in various ways to the fathers of God's people, the offspring chosen by grace, just as Hebrews 1 and verse 1 says. Isaac heard them. Jacob heard them. Moses, the people of Israel, David, the covenant was reaffirmed again and again and again and expanded and developed. And the nation of Israel was sovereignly chosen by God to be His unique people during the first part of redemptive history, what we call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And through Israel, God multiplied, multiplied in the earth His offspring, His people chosen by grace and declared righteous through faith like Abraham was. And through Israel, God promised to send the offspring, the singular offspring, who would come to earth as the Messiah, the ultimate prophet and priest and king, the one who all the prophets and priests and kings of the Old Testament point to, in that they failed and we need the prophet, priest, and king. And the one who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, Christ. He came from Israel, the people of Israel. The messianic prophet who would declare Yahweh's word of salvation, who would offer Himself a once-for-all sacrifice in behalf of His believing people, and who would rule over all the people of God chosen by grace until all of His enemies would be destroyed, even death itself, like 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, and He will usher in until He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth where He will reign with His people in perfect righteousness forever and ever. Now, there you have it. That's the 30, maybe that's the 60,000 foot view of the story of redemption. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? It's guaranteed. It's been promised 
by the God who cannot lie. Do you believe it? You believe this is where we're going? The end is where, is where we're going? The one talked about here? However, since the first gospel promise of Genesis 3.15 was given by God, were things always smooth sailing for the people of God? No. In fact, God promised, like we said, in that first promise that there would be enmity between the two kingdoms, the two offspring. If we're going to understand the story of the Word of God and the unfolding of God's redemptive plans, then we must keep in mind that enmity that God promised. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of the Messiah have been warring against each other since that promise was made. Think about it. How many times throughout redemptive history has Satan and the members of his kingdom sought to completely snuff out the kingdom of the Messiah? and the Messiah Himself. Let's get the bookends of it, and you can fill in what's the space in between. <clears throat> Egypt. Egypt, the first major world empire. And Pharaoh. He wanted to destroy the people of God. From slavery to the sons, the firstborn sons being slaughtered right out of the womb. Remember that? Genocide. Right? Genocide in the Old Testament. The stubbornness of Pharaoh, I will never let your people go. To the Red Sea, when Egypt was crowding in on Israel, and God delivered them. But what's the point? The seed of Satan wanted to destroy the seed of Christ. That's, what's going, that's, that's the enmity that exists constantly. How about the other end of the story? Rome and Herod. What did Herod do? Well, Jesus has got to be under two years old, so I don't want anybody to take my throne from me, so let's send out soldiers to kill every male child two years old and under. That is insanity. Where does that come from? That's the seed of Satan trying to be rid of the Messiah and the seed of the woman. That's what that is. That's insanity. That's un- How about unjust crucifixion? Christ's life as wicked men sought to destroy Him. The book of Esther presents to us yet another story in between those two in which this very same diabolical enmity threatens to destroy the people of God, the offspring from whom the offspring, the Messiah, would come to bless the world with redemption. The cosmic conflict between the kingdom of sin and the kingdom of grace has been raging wildly and widely since the beginning. And through it all, Satan and his hosts desire to destroy the people of God and the Son of God, and bring all of God's redemptive plans to a dead end. As you think through the storyline of Scripture, did, you, did it ever look like the covenant promises of God might be left unfulfilled? Like, if this happens, everything's done. Did it ever seem like the redemptive plans of God might be completely stopped? Think about 
how we get that sense even as we read the finished story. And I wonder how the people of Israel felt again and again and again as they were living in it. Did it ever appear that the chosen people of God might be destroyed? On the surface, yes. But have God's promises failed? Have His plans been stopped ever? Have the people of God, the chosen by grace, been destroyed? Never. You, you look through the redemptive story and God's plans have always been successful and they continue to this very day. In every single situation, even at the 11th hour, God has shown Himself to be infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, sovereign, loving, and faithful. He will bring all of His eternal redemptive plans and promises which He declared in Genesis 3.15 to a glorious conclusion in and through Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the other end of the story. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. I want to start in verse 7. Verses 1-6, through six, Paul just displays for us the glory of God's grace with which we have been blessed in Christ. And verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Why would God give us all these gifts and, and be so kind to us in this great salvation? Well, He begins to tell us, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. He has an infinite, eternal purpose that He is fulfilling. And you being saved and given all these, this grace and gifts of salvation in Christ, you're being drawn into this. You're drawn into this eternal purpose that will not be thwarted. An eternal purpose according to which He set forth in Christ. Everything, dear ones, comes through Christ. Everything is about Christ. Everything is about the coming of Christ and the consummation of Christ. And He set all this forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What is that? Those are great words in the New Testament. The fullness of time. When God wraps everything up and He brings it all to a glorious conclusion. A fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's the end of the story. One day, God will bring it all to a glorious conclusion in the person of Christ. He will be glorified. Every, everything that He has set out to do will be, will be completed. The story of Esther and the story of Israel and the story of the Messiah, and the story of the offspring who will reign with Christ as His kingdom, the church, this is one with our story. We have inherited this story. Do you realize this? This is our story. The body of Christ. It's the story of the church. We have been grafted into the people of God by the grace of God in Christ. We have inherited the heritage of the people of God in Christ. This is our story. This is your story if you are in Christ. Christ's future is your future. Christ's 
is yours and you are Christ's. And He will be our joy forever. And God will fulfill all of His covenant promises for our redemption in Christ. And that is the unchangeable, unstoppable finale of the story. Esther is one part of that story. And this church is one part of that story. And you are one part of that story. And what God promises at the end, He will bring to the conclusion that that verse 10 tells about as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So let, let the enmity of the kingdom of darkness rage because it will not be successful. God will win. God will accomplish all of the purposes that He set out to accomplish. That's what Esther's about. In spite of everything, in spite of everything that, that could possibly happen in the sovereignty of God. Number three, so then what's the point of Esther in particular? As the story of redemption unfolds, as you look at the big picture, and as you look at the small pictures like Esther, and as you look at Esther's picture, as you look at your own picture, here's what we need to see. See the glory of God as He providentially works redemptive reversal. We're going to talk about that. At the most dire moment for the sake of Christ and learn to trust Him wholeheartedly. I think this is the overall message of Esther. See the glory of God as He providentially works redemptive reversal at the most dire moment for the sake of Christ and learn to trust Him wholeheartedly. Will you think about that? Will you pray about that as we walk through Esther? There is so much for us to see. So much for us to delight in. Let me kind of break this down a little bit. First, <clears throat> God providentially works. Did you know that God is nowhere named in Esther? That's an amazing thing. God is nowhere named in Esther. I think there's only one other book like that, and I think it's the Song of Solomon. God's not named. And yet, He is everywhere present in the book of Esther. The providence of God is at work at every turn in the story of Esther. You watch it. Watch it happen. He is turning everything Everything toward the good of His people and the fulfillment of His plans for the ages in Christ. That's what God's doing in Esther. Xerxes' power. We're going to talk about that next week. What a powerful man. Vashti's disobedience. Esther's beauty. Mordecai's information. Haman's hatred. The king's sleeplessness. If we can just dip into the story a little bit. Everything. The providential hand of God. No, God is not sinful as He uses human sin to accomplish His purposes. He's being providential. He's being sovereign. He's being who He is. God always uses the sinfulness of man in a sinless way to accomplish His purposes. One commentator said it this way, the author is suggesting that beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work 
that can be neither explained nor thwarted. And that unseen power is Yahweh God Himself. God does not always work through the miraculous. That, that, that we can take heart in. We should not expect Him to. In fact, He most often works through completely normal human events. Even at very critical moments, God does not necessarily part the Red Sea or kill 185,000 soldiers with an angel or, or even turn the water into wine. That's not the way God always works. We shouldn't expect that. But, He does rather quietly work through ordinary human events. That's the providence of God. And it's just as amazing as His miracles. Maybe more so. In a miracle, God, and I think we so often misdefine miracles, God is, in a miracle, God is intervening and suspending the natural course of nature. And He does that. He does do that. He does it today, too. But you know what providence is? God is controlling all the normal, ordinary events of human life and weaving those together to accomplish His purposes. That's astounding how God can do that. God does not always work in the miraculous, but He works providentially. He's no less powerfully working for our good and the fulfillment of His ultimate plans in Christ. Now, why do you think God designed to inspire the book of Esther to be written without his name? It's an interesting question. Why? Why that one? And I don't think there's a way that we can know for certain, but maybe it is because Esther, without God spelled out plainly by his name throughout the book, maybe that gives us a perspective of life that is most like our own lives. We don't see God, do we? Not with our physical eyes. We don't see Him. We don't audibly hear His voice. Our days are not packed with one miracle after another by the definition of a true miracle. But God sees us, doesn't He? He sees us. He sees our lives as one strand of the tapestry of all the things that He has planned in Christ. And He's providentially and powerfully and irresistibly working through literally every ordinary event of our lives, of your life and mine, in order to bring all things to a glorious conclusion in Christ. All too often, and especially at dire moments, it can be so difficult for us as so often faithless human beings to remember that the providence of the unseen God is powerfully working through all the events of human life to bring everything to a glorious end. Do you forget that? I do. And I suspect you probably do too. God is providentially working in everything. King David struggled with this. Especially when the evil offspring, the evil offspring as Yahweh called them, the, the offspring of the evil one, the kingdom of darkness seemed to be prevailing over those chosen by grace to be the kingdom of light. Didn't David struggle with that? Look at Psalm 10. This is what happens sometimes when we live in the reality of Esther-like stories where we don't see God. We must then remember His providence. Look at Psalm 10. Look at verse 1. Do you ever feel this way? Be honest. 
Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Do you ever ask that? Or if you don't come out, if it doesn't come out your mouth, does it, does it ring in your heart? God, why? You're not doing anything right now. Something needs to happen now. I don't see you in this anywhere. That's how David felt. That's how we feel sometimes. And then the wicked is described in verses 1 through 13. Like, why is it that the kingdom of darkness, the offspring of the evil one, as God called them in Genesis 3:15, why do they always seem to be successful? That's what David's wrestling with. But then, David comes to verse 14. He says, but you do see. I love these verses. You do see. I don't see you, but you see me. And you note it. You know. You think on these things, God. You note the mischief and the vexation. And look at the next phrase in verse 14. That you may take it into your hands. God sees. He knows. He acts. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. You break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is what? King forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. God does see. Even though He is unnamed in Esther, He sees. Esther helps us to see that the unseen God sees and works providentially and powerfully in and through all of the affairs of men. Let's look at the next phrase in this main point here. He works providentially he works redemptive reversal. What is that? <clears throat> what is a redemptive reversal? And I want you to be really, really familiar with this concept as we go into Esther. This is what I'm calling a literary peripeteia. What is that? Okay, that's a word you've never heard before, maybe. Um, some of you, maybe, if you study literature, any literature scholars here, a literary peripeteia. You'll, you'll get it. It's a literary device that you need to understand as we come to the book of Ruth, but we're going to call it a redemptive reversal. That's much easier to say. One of the commentaries defines it as this, a sudden turn of events that reverses the unexpected outcome of a story. Okay, that makes sense. That's a peripeteia. That's a redemptive reversal. A sudden turn of events that reverses the unexpected outcome of the story. In fact, what's so cool about Hebrew literature is that the structure of Esther is sometimes described as a peripeteia itself, where the first five chapters move you toward that critical point, and then the second five chapters show the glory of God to turn everything around. You see? That's what this is. A redemptive reversal. It's like, wow, what can God do? Let's call this sudden turn of events simply a redemptive reversal. And we'll see it as the story unfolds that the structure of Esther is that redemptive reversal. In fact, 
Let me keep building on this a little bit. The reversal of Jewish destiny is what is celebrated in the Feast of Purim. Right? That's the feast in chapter 9 and 10. The Feast of Purim. Have you ever celebrated that? No. What is it? It comes from the book of Esther. That's when it began. Pur, the word pur on the front of that name of the feast, it means lot or dice. Like casting lots or casting dice. Well, what does that have to do? It's like a piece of dice that was cast to discern the will of deity. Isn't that what they did often? Like Jonah on the boat, let's cast lots. In here, Haman rolls a dice to figure out which day they're going to kill all the Jews. So there's this idea throughout the book of dice. The lot is cast into the lap. What does Proverbs say? The outcome is what? Of the Lord. Right? So there's this sense of a reversal of destiny. A reversal of destiny that is so easy in the hand of God as if the dice are thrown and everything turns around and goes in the other direction. That's what the book of Esther is about. Pur and the Feast of Purim itself represents a reversal of destiny, a redemptive reversal irresistibly determined by our powerful and wonderful working God. In other words... God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You may feel like you are in a nosedive. And at the last moment, God will bring it around for His glory and His redemptive purposes. That's the idea. That's what the story of Esther is about. And redemptive history is filled with redemptive reversals, isn't it? Have you noticed that? Joseph's story is a redemptive reversal. He's taken a nosedive, and where does his nosedive almost hit the ground? In prison. And then, what does God do? Turns it all around, and what does he become? Second in command of Egypt. Why? To the preservation of life. What life? The kingdom of God. The offspring of the woman. Why? So that Christ would come. And all of God's redemptive purposes would be fulfilled. Do you see how this works? This is how God works. He works in redemptive reversals all the time. That's why Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Ah, Wow, look what God did with that. He turned this whole story around. Amazingly, by His grace, because of Christ. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Well, Esther is that same kind of story. Look at Esther. <clears throat> I'll, I'll, I'll give you a sneak peek at the redemptive reversal. Look at Esther chapter 9. I, I don't want to explain the whole story. I want this to unfold for us as we go, as we read. I want us to, because I, I'm assuming that you're probably not as familiar with Esther as you are with Ruth or <coughs> Jonah. So maybe there'll be some surprises for us along the way. Esther 9, verse 1. Look what God has done. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, what? The reverse occurred. 
That is redemptive reversal right there. That is a glorious verse. That's, that's the, the, the celebration of everything that happened from chapter 5 to chapter 10. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. That's God in a small picture fulfilling His promise of Genesis 3.15. Look at verse 22. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gift to the poor. It, God turned this whole thing around for them. All these undeserving people, just like us, He turned their sorrow into joy. Now, where have you heard that phrase before? Turning sorrow into joy. Does that ring a, a bell in your mind of a, another text? How about Christ's story? His is a redemptive reversal. Look at John 16. Turn over to John 16. <clears throat> Verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. Remember, Jesus is telling his disciples these things on the night before his crucifixion. They are in despair. A little while, and you will see me no more. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Verse 17 of John 16. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this? What, what he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. In a little while, again, you will see me because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? Do we know? Do we not know? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but what? Your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born to the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice so that no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about His cross. The moment when Jesus' body, His crucified body is laid in the grave, dead, His disciples would be sorrowful. But what the hands of wicked men did, what did God do with that? Up from the grave He arose. And then what? Redemption was unleashed for the kingdom of, dark, of, kingdom of light. Right? That's redemptive reversal. Just like Joseph, just like Esther's story. All of redemptive history, in fact, pivots on the redemptive reversal of Christ and His cross, doesn't it? That's all of redemptive history. 
the lowest point of redemptive history was when Jesus was laid in the grave. And from then, we're only on a climb to that day when He will be recognized by all as King of kings and Lord of lords to the praise of God the Father. That's what Esther's about. Esther's a picture of that. The cross of Christ, even more than the story of Esther, becomes the paradigm for how God works redemptive reversal in our lives for our good and His glory. I love how Psalm 30, the last two verses, crystallizes this for us in a, in a song of praise. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. If you're in Christ, your small story as one part of the big story of all that God is unfolding for Christ will have its own redemptive reversals. You will. And you have. Because of Christ's grand redemptive reversal. But when do these redemptive reversals happen? They happen just in time. In God's perfect time. But they also happen at the most dire moments, don't they, sometimes? Think about Esther for a moment again. What will become plain in this story is how our faithful, providential, working God works redemptive reversals in the most dire of circumstances like selfish rulers, disobedient spouses, manipulative leaders, even worldly, compromising, sinning children of God. I think we need to come to the book of Esther with, with a preparation to be surprised at how badly the children of, of God are behaving. And yet, how faithful He is to His own promises to them in spite of them. Really, really difficult decisions. Great suffering ahead for the people of God. And so on. In and through all of the mess of human life, our faithful God sinlessly fulfills Romans 8.28, over and over and over again for those who are in Christ. And He powerfully works redemptive reversal. Again, it looks like the the airplane is in a nosedive at a nosebleed speed, but the last moment, Yahweh turns everything around and uses all of it to accomplish His perfect plan. Like like Romans 8 says, we may feel like sheep to be slaughtered, but what's the truth? In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And it's all for the sake of Christ, for the coming of Christ. Right? The, Esther is before the first coming of Christ. And that's what, in part, God has in mind. The people of God who would bring about the birth of Christ in a human sense will not be taken out before Christ is brought forth and all of His plans fulfilled. It's for the community of Christ. It's for everyone from Ruth to Esther. We talked about how Ruth was a piece of the redemptive plan of God. Well, who is she? She's a pagan widow from nowhere. Who's Esther? She's an Israelite who became the queen of the most queen of the most powerful empire known at that time. And everyone in between, God uses and brings them because of Christ 
to the fulfillment that He has planned for them. Ultimately, for the consummation of Christ when He is known as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so then we learn to trust Him wholeheartedly with our own lives and our own difficulties. To believe on Him. To trust Him. To depend on Him. To cry out to Him at those dire moments. To wait on Him. To shamelessly and fearlessly identify with Him and His people like Esther came to do. Like Moses did by faith. He identified with the people of God and turned His back on the pleasures of Egypt and to learn to obey Him and walk in holiness until He returns. And so, this book is here to help us to see this very message that God gloriously and providentially works redemptive reversals at the most dire moments for the sake of Christ so that we may learn to trust Him. One more question. So we bring it to a close. How should we apply Esther to our own lives? Well, first, which kingdom are you in? Think about that. Dear friend, please. Are you in Christ? Or like John says, are you still an offspring of the evil one? Every one of us is born into this world in the kingdom of Satan. Do you realize that? We are God's children by creation, but we are guilty children of Adam and of the offspring of Satan by inheritance. That's how we're all born. And there's only one way to get out of that. is to be born again. is to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Through the grace of Christ, just like Colossians 1 tells us. Have you been transferred? Has your citizenship changed? Through the new birth. Has your heart been summoned to long for Christ and all that is in Him? Can you say, Christ and all in Him is mine? Because that's the only way you can survive the chaos of this life. You must be in the kingdom of light. You must own Christ as your King. You must claim His righteousness and no other as your only dress before God the Father. Is that your faith? Is that your repentance? If that's not yet yours, please do not leave today without finding out more, hearing the Gospel. Come and talk with me. I want you to know that you're in the kingdom of light. Because otherwise, the rest of the book of Esther and all of its promises and and, and comforts are not for you. You must be in Christ. Bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for you who are already in Christ, we must learn by God's grace to be big picture viewers. That's what Esther will help us with. As you face those dire moments in your life, like Esther and the people of God did in their lives, you need, here's some counsel for us, okay? Hear this well. You need to compare your little picture, your life picture, to this little picture of Esther and place both those pictures side by side in the frame of the big picture of God's redemptive plan. Do you do that regularly to counsel yourself through the most difficult of moments? Step back. Look at the big picture. 
You need to know that the God of Esther will be the God of all who are in Christ and He will do for you in and through you what He did for in and through them. He's our God too in Christ. You will arrive safely in Christ, reigning with Him in His eternal kingdom, and you will be amazed at how God causes everything to work together for good. You don't see that side now, but remember it's there. Step back and look at the big picture. Have you ever experienced a bit of enmity that exists in the world that God promised in Genesis 3.15? You ever felt it? You felt the hatred from the evil one who wants to frustrate and stop the advancement of God's redemptive plans in your life? Have you ever thought about a situation in your life? There's no way this situation is going to work out well. You ever said that? This is not going to work out well. This can't turn out for my good. There is no way that this will be productive for the purposes of God. I've thought that myself about certain things that have happened. I'm like, this, this isn't productive. How can this be good? If you're honest, we feel that way, right? Sometimes. My country and its governors are a disaster. Have anybody ever said that? My work and employer is a pain in the neck. My marriage and my spouse are so hurtful to me. My children are causing me so much pain. This illness is so counterproductive. This financial strain is so stressful, etc. You plug it in. Whatever the dire moment is. In moments like these, we must learn to step back and see the big picture of what God is doing for the sake of Christ. Don't just look at how difficult, how the difficult situation relates to only you or me. Don't just look at the present moment in your life. Don't, don't just look at your puny human abilities and resources. Don't just look at your present earthly expectations and desires. And I mean earthly. Think about the big picture. In your dire moment, what does God plan to do in Christ for a great number of people through your trouble? What is God doing to weave that in? What has God planned to do in Christ for the years ahead, for the next generation because of that dire moment? You don't know the outcome yet. What does God plan to do in Christ through His unseen hand of providence and His infinite power that overshadows all your weakness? What does God plan to do in Christ for the great day of eternity when all things are united in Christ and you reign with Him in the new heaven and the new earth forever? Every dire moment that the believer has has something to do with each one of those questions. We have to think that way. That's how we get through that's how we, by their example, endure with hope and encouragement. Isn't this the point of it, the song, It Is Well With My Soul? When peace like a river attendeth my way. Those are nice days. When peace like a river attendeth my way. But that's not every day, is it? When what? Sorrows like sea billows roll. Well, that's a lot of our days, isn't it? Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Why can we say that? 
Because what God has promised to do in Christ. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day. See, see how the song ends? We go from the present affliction to the victory of the cross to the final consummation. Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sighted. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trumpet resound. The Lord will ascend. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. See, that's, that's Esther. It's helping us to see the big picture from the little picture and how God makes redemptive reversals that bring about the conclusion and the consummation of His plans forever. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You may rest assured, dear child of God, that you will see glorious, redemptive reversal from, your, from the most horrific moments of your life. If you're in Christ, you will. And you may not see it in time, but it is guaranteed that you will see it in eternity. Rest in that. That's the point that Esther will bring us to. And may the Lord teach us these things as we come to this book with open hearts, filled with the Spirit, waiting to be taught by Him. Let's, let's pray together. Would you stand with me as we pray? <clears throat> Father in heaven, we, we are eager to see these wonderful things out of Your Word. Help us to see Your glory. Help us to see You first and foremost as we come to this book. We want to see You. We want to be able to learn more about You. How You work. Who You are. So that we may learn to quickly take refuge in You and rejoice in You through all of the seasons of our lives. Father, teach us how Your providential hand is behind everything. Everything. Not that You're guilty for anything, but that You are sovereign over everything. Help us to trust Your providential hand. Father, help us to see Your glory of being totally, powerfully capable and insistent upon making redemptive reversals in the most dire moments of our lives. And that's true for all who are in Christ. Thank You for that, Father. Help us to watch for Your work in that way. To remember the cross and to see how You have demonstrated that for us powerfully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And indeed, Father, may we learn that all things come to us in Christ. May we delight in Him above all else and learn to trust for Your glory we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.